Amen. Great message in that song. Could you meet me in Luke chapter 7, please, this morning? Luke chapter 7. We want to go to a story here about a centurion and learn a little bit about centurions. That will help us with the context. Luke chapter 7. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 through 10. And then we'll comment about it. Luke chapter 7, verse 1. Now when he had ended all his sayings in the audience of the people, he entered into Capernaum. And a certain centurion's servant who was dear unto him was sick and ready to die. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews, beseeching him that he would come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they besought him instantly, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. For he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them. And when he was now not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself, for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter under my roof. Wherefore, neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee. But say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man set under authority, having under me soldiers. And I say unto one, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned him about and said unto the people that followed him, I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. And they that were sent, returning to the house, found the servant whole that had been sick. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, only you, by your spirit, can give us the truth that's here for each of us today. You can guide us into truth, Holy Spirit, and you can convince us of things in our life that uh, should change, that, uh, that need to come into more in line with your life. And so, Lord, I pray that each of us, our heart would be toward that, that we would really want to know the truth from this text. Make your word alive to us today. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Centurions. Let's learn a little bit about them. There were seven in the New Testament, seven individual centurions. I believe only one of those is actually named. Two of them, during the life of Christ, this is one of those. The other one, we should have a quiz. The other one is, during the life of Christ, the other one would be the one at his cross. The one at his cross. Then, of course, in Acts chapter 10, Cornelius, and uh, what a marvelous story. What a great story of, of a Roman centurion. And then there are four more who participate in Paul's transportation from Jerusalem to Rome. This one is not named, but it is a pretty significant story. There are things about the story that were not told, but we can surmise from the results of what happens in his life. The centurion, who were they? They were significant men in the Roman army. These, uh, these offices were not handed out freely. 
most centurions obtained their position by doing great feats of bravery in battle. It is said that a centurion would have to be 30 plus years of age, but really in addition to that, would have had to have been in the army for 15 to 20 years by the time they could ever think of becoming a centurion. There was great influence. Great power was wielded by a centurion. They were set apart from the other legionnaires, infantrymen. They were readily seen because they would carry their sword on the left while all the other soldiers carried theirs on the right. They had a plume over their helmet so that they could be seen from a distance as who they were. They carried every day a rod called a vine staff. It was made of vine wood, grape vine wood, which if you know anything about grapevines, that gets woody, but it's still flexible. And the, his vine staff was three feet long. He carried that around, and at any point, at any time, if he wanted to beat somebody with it, he could, without any fear of reprisal. He could take anybody to task with that staff in his hand. That was a symbol of his authority, and he was a feared individual. Some of them were quite brutal, and they used that to maintain the discipline of the soldiers unto him. A centurion was called such because most generally, most of the time in history, he had a hundred men underneath him. Many of those were legionnaires, infantrymen. Some were servants, perhaps like this one right here, boys, uh, those that just attended to him and his, and his other soldiers and helped him in his cause. A, uh, a centurion was a man of great influence. He was a man of great wealth. It is said that a centurion could, could be paid as much as 17 times what the men under him were paid. 17 times. That's a lot of money. Do you know if you take minimum wage in Wisconsin, seven and a quarter, and take it times 17, that's $123 an hour. How'd you like to earn that? At minimum wage, you earn $15,000 a year. At $123 an hour, you would earn that in three weeks. A centurion potentially, I'm not saying all of them, but potentially could earn in three weeks what the men under him earned in a year. It was a sought-after position. Would you apply? A centurion. Let me read from an ancient manual. The Manual on Roman Warfare and Military Principles. This is nearly 2,000 years old. It says, The centurion in the infantry is chosen for his size, strength, and dexterity. In throwing his missile weapons and for his skill in the use of his sword and shield. In short, for his expertness in all the exercises, he is to be vigilant, temperate, active, 
and readier to execute the orders he receives than to talk. Strict in exercising and keeping up proper discipline among his soldiers, in obliging them to appear clean and well-dressed, and to have their weapons constantly rubbed and bright. A centurion. They were influential, they were wealthy, and there was great peril in being, being a centurion or even attempting to become one. Centurions didn't lead from the back, they led from the front. Their position was always at the front right corner of their legion, of, the, of the, their portion of the legion. And from there, they led by example. They were the first into the battle. And if you wanted to become a centurion, that's the way that you entered battle, attempting to be first. Many, many men died trying to become centurions. But even having become a centurion, many died themselves. One of the most famous of the centurions in the Roman era was a man who himself participated in, in, in 122 battles and received 45 battle scars on his body. These men were scarred, they were hardened, they were tough, they were Roman centurions. They didn't get that position by accident, they earned it. And now we have one that Jesus is going to encounter, really the first one named in the New Testament. We're not given his name, but spoken of here in the New Testament. We're told that he lives in Capernaum. This has become Christ's new home. He has left Nazareth, a sleepy city in Galilee of some two to four hundred people, we think. Really not more than that. And he's moved now to Capernaum, which is, we think, about 1,500 in population. Not the most significant city in Galilee, but one of them. And apparently one so significant that it would have a Roman garrison here. And so here, on this particular day, at the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount in the previous chapters, Jesus now enters again into this town of Capernaum. And it says what's happening here, verse 2, a certain centurion servant who was dear unto him. And we're learning something about a centurion, this centurion already. He's not like other centurions. He values life. It's very interesting. Many would just walk around beating and clubbing, and if the servant died, he'd get another one. But this one, this young lad, was dear to him. He couldn't bear to watch him suffer. Matthew's account of the same here says that he was grievously tormented. We get the, the idea that the servant is writhing in pain. And the centurion, his master, cannot, cannot stand to see it. There must be something that a, that a man so, so big, so strong, so influential, so wealthy, so powerful, there must be something that he can do. And there's nothing. 
There's very little that a centurion couldn't do. But he'd met his match. And this servant is so dear to him that for him to die is just, it cannot happen. It's like part of him will die with him. I cannot allow this to happen. And yet he's powerless. Imagine that, a centurion who's helpless. He would die in battle like this. But he can't provide life for this dear one. I want you to know that that is his cause. The centurion's cause is the life of this servant. And throughout these verses, throughout this event that all occurs on one day, there is nothing more important to him than his cause. Do you understand that? There is nothing. It will drive him this day, that cause. It's consuming him. If you said, hey, you know what, buddy, you ought to, you ought to sit down and have a snack. You ought to take a nap. I don't think so. Not today. My servant is dying. And he's going to throw his all into it. As we've already read, and we'll look at now, notice now he has his cause, first of all. Here's his solution, number two. His solution begins in verse 3. And when he heard of Jesus, he sent unto him the elders of the Jews. Now, is he headed the right direction? Yeah, he's, got the, he's locked on to the right thing, right? Radar lock, Jesus is here. He doesn't say, oh, that'll never do. That guy's just a poor rabbi. I'm going to need somebody from the universities and the colleges down in Jerusalem. He doesn't care that he's a Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Galilee? He doesn't care. This man, I've heard things about. Already, there have been <coughs> healings by Jesus in Capernaum. You go back to chapter 4, and in, at the end of chapter 4, Jesus, after entering into a synagogue in Capernaum, casting out a demon there, goes to Peter's house in Capernaum and heals Peter's mother-in-law. That's just in the last months here. In chapter 5, <clears throat> also in Luke here, he does another act of healing in Capernaum because Mark's account of it tells us it's in Capernaum. When in a, uh, a house preaching, some men decide to install a skylight. <clears throat> well, they did. And they let down a man who, uh, who was helpless, paralytic, and Jesus <clears throat> put him on his feet and sent him out the front door. That's pretty impressive. Whether you were from uh, Jerusalem or wherever you're from, that's pretty good. And I wonder if this centurion right here from here in Capernaum has heard about this. That's chapter 5. Chapter 6, verse 6, notice this. It says, and we believe that this also then would be in Capernaum, and it came to pass. Chapter 6, verse 6, also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue. Again, back in the synagogue, I wonder if this is the synagogue that this man financed, this centurion. I wonder if he knew there was a demon in his synagogue in chapter 4. It's an accessory. 
was added later. All right, now, chapter, chapter 6 here. There was a man whose right hand was withered. Verse 7, and the scribes and the Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day that they might find accusation against him, but he knew their thoughts. And he said unto the man which had the withered hand, rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he rose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful on the Sabbath days to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? And looking round about upon them all, he said unto the man, stretch forth thy hand. And he did so. And his hand was restored whole as the other in the synagogue in Capernaum. Notice verse 11, and they were filled with madness and communed one with another what they might do to Jesus. Is Jesus popular in Capernaum? Not with everybody. But a centurion is listening. And faith cometh by Faith is being stirred in the heart of this centurion, a Gentile. Faith. Do you know what faith is? Faith is depending upon God to do something for me that I can't do for myself. For a centurion to come to the point where he is ready to depend upon somebody else to do something that he cannot do, that would be remarkable. Of all people to come to faith, that would be remarkable. But he's heard of Christ. And now here he is in chapter 7 and verse 3, and he sends for him. But I want you to notice his particular solution. I mean, this is the centurion solution. He sent unto him the elders of the Jews. He didn't send the Pharisees. Right? For good reason. They probably wouldn't come back with him. The centurion knows that. He sends not the religious leaders, he sends the political leaders. The local magistrates, the city council. You go and get this done. I wouldn't be surprised. Now listen, do you think if you were walking through the streets of Capernaum, 1500, so it's, you know, it's not huge by our standards, but it's, it's decent sized by Galilee standards for sure. Only a small portion of that's been uncovered today, a very small portion. If they were to uncover the entire ruins of Capernaum, would they be digging up highways and buildings? It's pretty extensive right there on the north shores of the Sea of Galilee. If you were walking the streets and the centurion had sent for you, somebody came up to you and said, the centurion would like to see you. Now, would you take that as a suggestion? Would you say, you know, <laughs> I'm pretty busy right now. I'm studying for an exam. I got a ball game to go to, a fellowship meeting. I'll get there someday. Pull out your planner. I'll schedule you in. You know, when the centurion sent for somebody, people trembled. He has a vine staff. He can do what he wants. Generally speaking, the Jews hated not just the Romans, particularly the centurions. They were representative of the Romans and who they were in our country. But this man is unique. The politicians here would do something for him. They really would do something for him. They go readily 
to find this Jesus. And notice here, they besought him instantly. The word means earnestly. They are very burdened to see Jesus follow through with the request of this centurion, saying that he was worthy for whom he should do this. Do what? Come and heal. Notice, for he loveth our nation, and he hath built us a synagogue. He's worthy. Is he? Say, well, it sounds pretty good. I'm telling you, these magistrates are all about it. They are. you got to understand. Now, just listen to me. If you don't know this man, we do. Now, look, this guy has done things. We've got something really good going on here. Now, don't you blow it. He's got a request, and if you at all can, I don't know what you're going to do, but you better just get there and try. Just don't blow this thing. This is a big deal. And they're looking, if one of them could, they'd be, you're going to get there. Do you understand me? They are all about it. But notice, this is all part of the centurion's solution to his cause. You remember what his cause is? Now, let me ask you this one question. Is the centurion's cause about him yielding himself to Christ or Christ yielding himself to the centurion? Do you know the answer? Is it that the centurion is yielding himself to Christ? No. He's using all the force of his influence here. Now, he didn't send soldiers. He knew better than that. But he is influencing and he's, he's manipulating and pressuring Christ to come and do this very good thing. I wonder if we can do that sometimes. Instead of just simply yielding ourselves to the one who can, to the one who will. And the reasoning behind this, he is worthy. Really. Do you know who is worthy? Do you know who is worthy? It doesn't happen to be the centurion, right? Are you worthy? We're worthy of hell. He alone is worthy. He's worthy because he loveth our nation. Listen to me. Who loves the nation of Israel? He came unto his own, born of a woman under the law, to redeem them that were under the law. Who did that? It must be hard for Jesus to hear these things. He's worthy. You get to work because he's worthy. He loves our people. I don't know about you. I don't know who you are. But if you loved us too, you'd get over there because he, he does. Jesus has come a long way to be in the streets of Capernaum, hasn't he? And I'm not talking about from Nazareth. And he has built us a synagogue, a place of worship, 
Well, that's remarkable. Do you know what Jesus would do? He said, you, uh, you destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. There's a place of worship. Jesus himself, he would give his life. His temple would be destroyed for all. This man has built a synagogue. Jesus would give himself. He alone is worthy. Now that's going to play into this. Because notice what happens. It is a remarkable thing in verse 6 that Jesus doesn't say, you just don't even understand. Get out of here. I'm not coming to his place. You know that Jesus loves him? And Jesus is responding to the bit of faith that's there. Then Jesus went with them. And that should be the end of the story, really. That he would go, that he would heal, everything goes well. But that's not the story. That's not how it went. Frankly, the most remarkable thing is yet to happen. And it's, it's hardly explainable. But I think if we look closely, we can rightly divide the word of truth here. Notice it says, verse 6, Then Jesus went with them, period, and when? He was now not far from the house. The centurion sent friends. Did he send again the elders of the Jews? He's going to leave his solution. Now, there's something that happens right there on that period in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, period. And when? There's a period of time there. And I would understand that during that time, the elders came back to the centurion and said, he's on his way. He's coming. He's making his way here. He, he won't be long. He's just across town. And that was good news. Right? My solution is working. I don't know how it's going to happen, but this is going to be good. It's, it's working. But then somehow it wasn't working. And I can't explain it because God didn't really give us. But something must have happened in his heart because there's a change in him. The closer that Jesus got, the more troubled the centurion was. It shouldn't have been that way. It should have been, it's working. Goody, I hope he gets here soon. It's almost done. And that's not what was happening. He has a wrestling in his own soul. He's troubled about the way he's gone about this. He's under conviction about pressing and manipulating. Who do I think I am? What have I done? Who am I to tell him? Somebody could stand by and hear him say that and say, well, you are the centurion. Act like one. Well, that's the problem. I have been. Acting like a centurion. Practically giving orders. And who am I giving orders to? And he comes to grips with who Jesus is. Who is coming? And notice now that things completely change. His solution changes. And when he was now not far, not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying unto him, Lord, trouble not thyself. Trouble not thyself. 
for I am not worthy that thou shouldst enter into my home, my roof. First it was, come, come, but you got to come now. you got to come fast. I'm sure that the, uh, <laughs> I'm sure if he was standing there listening to the, uh, the elders of the Jews, the centurion would go, yeah, yeah, no, that's exactly right, what they're saying. And they were adding, of course, their own encouragement in the matter. You know, you've got to do this. You've got to do it for him. You've got to do it for us. You've got to get this done. And all of a sudden, the same centurion, not, I don't know, minutes, half an hour, now sends people back to him. Friends. We're particularly told now he calls friends and sends them, you've got to hurry. You've got to get to him. He's almost here. And you've got to stop him. Isn't that what he said? Don't come under my roof. This is mind-boggling. <laughs> How can a man do a 180? What Does he not care about the cause? Is the cause gone? You, you, wait a minute. You're saying the cause is still there. So what? He just doesn't care as much anymore? What changed? Something changed. There's not a verse in there that tells us all the turmoil that he went through in his own soul. But something happened. Something spiritual happened in this big guy. Gruff scars on him. Money all around him. He's pacing the floor. Others are saying, "What? he's coming. What's, what's troubling you? What's troubling me is I'm troubling him. And it needs to stop. And I'm telling you, it needs to stop now. I've got to stop acting like a centurion. I'll tell you what happened. I'll tell you what happened. Right there on that period in verse 6. Then Jesus went with them, period. The centurion did what centurions were trained to do. He died. This centurion died. He died to himself. His ways, his influence, his authority, it's not going to be my way. It's going to be his way. I believe I know who he is now. And now I know who I am. He died. Centurions were trained for that. The Romans had many awards, many medals, wreaths, necklaces, crowns that were available to soldiers to win, many. Centurions loved to be adorned in these medals. They wore them into battle. It certainly indicated to the men that they had experience. One of the greatest of these awards, probably the greatest that a centurion, at least in his position, could earn, was called the mural crown, M-U-R-A-L, the mural crown. 
We know of a mural today as a, as a painting. But the word literally doesn't mean paint. It means wall. The emphasis is on what you were painting. That's what it's named for. The mural crown was a wall crown. It was awarded to the soldier, any soldier, who could get over the enemy's fortification wall and plant his feet inside the enemy's land successfully. He would then be awarded the mural crown. It was the most coveted. Many men became centurions when they obtained the mural crown. Tens of thousands of Roman soldiers storming a battlement. The one who lived and put his sandals on the ground in enemy territory, he got that crown. And he wore it with distinction. I can't say with certainty that this centurion had that award. I'm telling you that's what they were trained for. That's what they lived for. That's what they died for. This centurion died. You know, last week, Wednesday, we remembered 9-11. In less than two hours, 19 assailants took the lives of 2,977 people in less than two hours. People that morning that got out of bed, ate their breakfast, went to work, not knowing that their lives would end that day due to the efforts of 19 men. One of the most uh, stirring thing about, and there's, there's just heroic stories all through that, but to me, one of the most touching things is Flight 93. If you're familiar with that, it was the last plane. Took off from Newark, I believe it was, headed out over Pennsylvania for Ohio, when the four hijackers on that plane of 33 passengers, nearly empty plane, 33 passengers, seven crew members, four terrorists, 40 civilians. They took control of the plane somewhere in western Pennsylvania after a scuffle there, herded all the rest to the back of the plane and told them, you'll be fine, there's a bomb on the plane, don't try anything. Once our demands are met, you'll be released. What did they hear? You'll live. A man named Tom Burnett got on the phone with his wife 30-some phone calls were made from that plane. Only 12 of them were successful. One of those was Tom Burnett to his wife. And in that phone call at about 9.30 that morning, his wife revealed to him what had been going on. About one trade tower and then two. And then finally the Pentagon. Tom Burnett would put the phone down and talk to his, the others that were sitting around him in the back of the plane. Hey, here's what's been really going on. People are dying everywhere. Planes are being used as missiles. Passengers are dying. Do you know what happened in the back of that plane? They died. You say, no. No, no. They died when the plane hit the ground. 
No, sir. That's not what happened. In the back of the plane, they all realized we are dead. Right? If we do nothing, we're dead. We're dead. In the back of that plane, 33 people, plus a few of the crew, the stewardesses, they, they died. There was a cause. The cause were the lives of people in Washington, D.C., who were walking around, hundreds probably, that they got out of bed and they had their breakfast and they didn't know that in 20 minutes they would be dead. These 30-some people had a cause. And they died to themselves so that those people could live. Do you know that somewhere in America, there are hundreds of people, now 18 years later, living, walking around living. They have life. And they don't even know the price that was paid for them, for their life, 20 minutes away from their own death. But they live today because these 33 passengers died in the back of the plane and then acted accordingly. Do you understand? Very selflessly. The question is asked, where did Jim Elliott die? The obvious answer is Ecuador. The real answer, no. Ten years before that, he enrolled in Bible college as a freshman. And it has been said that while a student at Bible college, Jim Elliott died. Do you understand what I mean? What are you not dead to? What ambition, what is so important to you that you haven't died to it yet? You're still living under that thing. Likewise, Reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin and alive unto God. What is it that you're still living for? Like the centurion before his conversion and death here. And now he's free. Now I understand who you are and what you can do. And I understand who I am and I'm no longer going to live for myself. It's going to be me yielding to you, not you yielding to me. Even in a really good cause, it has to be you. It's changed everything about him. The tension is gone. You can, you can feel it. He's got to get here. He's got to get here. No, you don't have to get here. You could do anything. You are the one that's worthy, not me. Notice, verse 8, for I also, here he, the word for, because, he says in verse 7, wherefore neither thought I myself worthy to come unto thee, but say in a word, and my servant shall be healed. That's remarkable. You can do it from a distance. Your word is powerful, 
more powerful than anything I've seen in the Roman legions, you can speak a word. I know who you are. And how does he explain that he knows this? For I also. Can you put that in your own words? For I also. How about like you, I'm the same way. Just like you, me. You know what that is? Right here. Identity. I'm just like you. Can you look at Jesus and say, I'm just like you? That's what he just said. I also. Can you identify with Christ? It's pretty remarkable what he's come to. I also am a man under authority, and that gives me authority. Because you are under the authority of your father, you can do anything. I know that principle because it works in the Roman legions. We're just the same. Do you know that Christ in you means that you have that? All authority. Students, are you under authority? Are you under authority? Does your demerit record show that? Are you living out the identity that you have in Christ? Or is it still too much you? Is it time really to give up this life? Die to choices and personal ambitions and desires and what we like? And it's only Christ. Not him yielding to me. Me yielding to him. Let's bow our heads.